Hello and welcome to the formal review. Today, we will be having a very special episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello everyone and welcome back to the formal review. This is season 3 episode 20 and I thank you all for joining me once again. Now this is the 5th episode in the monthly Look Back at History series. Similar to last month, August marks a very significant moment in comic book history. 9 years ago, in 2011, in the comic book series, Ultimate Comic Fallout number 4 had the first appearance of Miles Morales. As such, this episode will be looking back at the 2018 film centered around this character. But before before we go into that film, let me introduce my guest. I am very, very happy and grateful to have San Diego Comic-Con panelist, author, and fellow comic book lover, Dr. Frederick Aldama joining me today. He is also known as Professor Latinx and is a Humanities Distinguished Professor of English and University Distinguished Scholar at The Ohio State University. He has written 36 books, including the 2018 International Latina Book Award and Eisner Award-winning Latinx Superheroes in Mainstream Comics. Aldama is a creator and curator of Planetary Republic of Comics, which is a platform for accessible scholarly knowledge about comic books and graphic nonfiction from around the world. He uses narrative theory, cognitive science, and insights from Latinx and Latin American critical cultural theory in his teaching and scholarships on Latino and Latin American cultural phenomena in literature, art, music, film, TV, sports, video games, and comic books. And earlier this year, like I mentioned, he was a participant on the Comic-Con at Home panel, The Impact of universality of superhero stories. Welcome, Frederick. Thank you again for agreeing to join me after me watching your panel that you were part of with the Comic-Con at home. I really enjoyed that panel. It was one of my favorites. But before we, I guess, get into that too much, since we're talking about superheroes, what's your origin story? Uh, where did you start off? How did you get to where you are now? Yeah, so origin stories, those are always fun. And actually, you and I both know they're the kind of low-hanging fruit for our superhero movies and our superhero comics right because mm -hmm. we all want to know how like the character the everyday average person gets to where they want to go and especially for those of us who have been kind of are coming from you know the kind of traditionally underrepresented historically underrepresented spaces latinxes african-americans so the origin story yes mine you know we moved when i was a little guy i was about five years old from mexico i was born in mexico to guatemalan irish american mom and a Mexican dad. Uh, they met in Mexico City. Um, and in fact, my mom was on her way to Guatemala City when she was 18 and got off the bus in Mexico City and then had us and a family and all that stuff and ended up throwing us on the bus and getting us back to California when I was a little one. And part of my origin story is, of course, you know, learning English in and through comics the little tienda just down the street from us and the spin racks and fantastic four and cap america all becoming kind of my library my literacy devices i was able to look at words and look at pictures and figure out kind of you know how to read english yeah so that's part of it and then you know this is outside of sacramento rural parts of california that we mostly lived in moving around here and there my mom dedicated herself to a life as a bilingual educator teacher and you know 
as a kind of in a way she was our superhero you know she's a single mom uh, left our dad in mexico and put herself through school with us little guys running around and really showed us the way and you know that's what happened i ended up working hard and a little bit of luck and some teachers kind of believing in me and going to berkeley and then getting a phd at stanford becoming a professor writing a bunch of books on comics especially latinx comics comics created by latinos and latinas as well as those that have in the mainstream kind of represented or misrepresented us that's quite a story i think that what really drew me to uh reaching out was one thing that you said during the panel when you were asked why do superheroes resonate so much there's something extraordinary about superheroes because it allows adults teens and children to step into a place of subjectivity of infinite possibilities and for those who have otherwise maybe economic or ethno-racial gender sexuality etc were confined to a straitjacket, superheroes essentially make it like putting the cape on and flying really not into the sky, but just into the inner heliosphere. And that really spoke to me just because it was kind of exactly what I was thinking. Because when, maybe a few months ago, do you know about the whole 30-day movie challenge that was going around? Yeah. I did one of those. And when I got to day 10, which was the favorite superhero film, I kind of went into this really introspective of what the importance of superheroes are. And I wrote this article about it. And it actually got me looking into psychology of it and really interesting stuff about why certain superheroes really speak to people. People. And I kind of came around to this why we look at these things, one in comics and also in film, is that we want to attach ourselves, similar to what you said, attach yourself to like these characters and want to see themselves in us and these people with these huge abilities and they're still imperfect, but we still relate to them and we really enjoy seeing them struggle, but also are able to do the right thing in the end. Mm -hmm. And with your words about that, I think that was just so along the exact same lines. For you, when it comes to the importance of superheroes, if you could just elaborate on that a little bit more. Um. Yeah, so thanks so much for paying such close attention to that panel and to what I had to say. So, you know, we all daydream. We start daydreaming almost the second we're born. I mean, we can't measure it, but you know that little babies are, you know, doing a lot of creative work with their brains. We do it as children, we do it as teenagers, we do it as adults, lots of daydreaming, right? And and well, what is a daydream? In a way, it's a kind of wish fulfillment. It's a clearing in our imagination of a space for possibility, possibilities that might not feel possible in our real everyday lives. And in a way, superhero comics taps into that. It's someone else kind of creating a daydream for us to be invited into and, you know, to put on those capes or to put on that spidey outfit, right? Uh, take up that shield, that hammer, what have you, and do things that we can't normally do or that we don't feel like we can do. But there's something really super powerful about stepping into those spaces of infinite possibility. It actually does resonate. It does empower. And there are moments when we come out of our daydreams, when we come out, step outside of our comics, our comic books or our comic book films, and we feel like, yeah, maybe we can do it. It might not be saving the planet in the same way that the Avengers do, but it might 
be, yeah, I can overcome the challenges of, you know, my everyday life. And I can do that now. I feel empowered to do that. So there's something really powerful, something really empowering about the way comic books invite us, not just to daydream, but they invite us into these spaces of daydreaming that allow us to see ourselves as empowered. Let me add one more thing, which is that, you know, when a lot of us kind of deal with or think about representation and identity, especially identities that have been historically unrepresented or deliberately erased from popular media, popular culture, Latinxes in particular, in my case, uh, as my focus. A lot of people think of us as passive, absorptive sponges, passive. We're just absorbing and reacting. But we're not. We're actually, you know, you and I and others, that second that I saw that spin rack, I didn't see a Latinx superhero on the spin rack. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw the thing, I saw, you know, I saw all sorts of Mr. Fantastic, all sorts of really cool characters. I was able, because of the way our imagination is built, we can co-create, we can transform those characters into ourselves, into superheroes that, you know, we step into. And so there's something really powerful about comic books and that kind of daydreaming capacity and then the invitation to co-create. Now, let me just say, this doesn't mean that we're letting DC and Marvel, for instance, off the hook and that they can continue just to create white A-lister superheroes. They need to create characters that represent the diversity of us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, white readers, you know, Anglo readers need to be invited into our spaces or they need to do the work involved in co-creating with a Miles Morales. We've had our histories, long histories of being asked to co-create ourselves in these white spaces. It's now I think it's time that, you know, our Anglo audiences and readers can be invited to do the same and do the work of co-creating in our spaces. Yeah, I definitely agree, because for me, similarly, when I was first starting off when it comes to comic books, I was reading things like Flash or Superman or stuff like that. And obviously, with those characters, it's not really representative of myself, which I'm half Japanese. So there's not a lot of Asian mainstream comics. It's not shown as much. But I mean, like you said, when I was a kid, I wasn't obviously thinking about that. I was losing myself within these comics. And I think that for somebody, for any children who are either Asian or Latinx like yourself, they don't so much so have that mainstream heroes. Yeah, now obviously with Miles Morales character and obviously with how Black Panther blew up a few years ago, there's definitely a lot more push for diversity in some of these characters, which I think is such a progressive and I definitely really like where it's going. But one thing that I think when I was looking more into some of your career, one thing that I noticed was how you deal with cognitive science and how that relates to comic books and superheroes. Because how do you apply cognitive cognitive science to comic books and superheroes and stuff. Yeah, that's great. So in my book, uh, Latinx Superheroes in Mainstream Comics, the middle section is really all about formulating a, what I call a geometrizing of the story, where I basically talk about the significance of form and layout and the panel and what's going on there. But just as importantly, not just like what we're seeing, but what we're doing with what we're seeing, what we're perceiving and what we're feeling and what we're thinking. And so the cognitive science really is at the kind of, you know, it whispers in and through all of my work on comics. It's part of the notion, the 
the concept of co-creation, right? That we're not just kind of passive absorptive sponges that are acted on, but that we are constantly interfacing in a very proactive way with the world that we exist in. So, you know, what do you do when we're moving from a two-dimensional panel and we're moving across a gutter or we're moving to another panel and another panel in sequence? How are we experiencing time? How are we experiencing space and time? How are we infusing in our mind? How are we gap filling, as we say? How are we creating motion, emotion, right? And the cognitive sciences are really powerful in that they can offer us a deep understanding of not only what we're doing when we're reading comics, but also the creative process involved in making comics, how it is that we can take something like the daydream, the imagination, and materialize it in the sequential form that comics takes shape through, you know? So where is creativity come from? How can we understand creativity? Um, so yeah, that's really what that's all about. It's a way to kind of give a depth and a deep foundation to our understanding of this thing that we love. Mm, that's really interesting. And I think it's really great that you're going into that. How, when it comes to, I guess, with how you approach comics and stuff, how, I guess, were you getting funding, obviously, as working as a professor? Um, because... 10 years ago, I wouldn't think that a professor who wanted to look into the science of comic books and how that like relates to our mind, I would not think that somebody would give funding to that. I mean, obviously I'm wrong, but how did you in the past convince people? This is a mystery to everybody. Like, you know, there's assistant professors, associate professors, full professors, you know, all that stuff. I mean, when we're in college, we just see a professor, but there's all sorts of stuff going on behind the scenes. And there are certain things that you need to do do to get those steps like you need to do this to get tenure and you need to do this to become like the top of the professor chain etc the short answer to this question which is a really good one is that when i first finished my phd at stanford i knew that i wanted to write on comics i knew that i wanted to write on latino latinx comics but i also knew that the university my first job at the university of colorado boulder would likely not give me tenure that means means I wouldn't have moved from assistant professor to associate professor and you know that would have been a big deal. So I wrote a pretty traditional book or a couple of books and it wasn't until a little bit later when I was a full professor like I'd done everything like I'm done jumping through the hoops that I wrote my first book, Your Brain on Latino Comics. And, you know, I really, there, I was pretty aggressive about my bringing cognitive science insights, but also really, really laser focused on the Latino creators because nobody had told that story. And there are all these amazing creators out there doing this incredible work. And so that book for me was the book I'd always wanted to write, but I knew I couldn't until I was done jumping through all those hoops. Now, mm -hmm. I'm a kind of first generation, say, of you know, comics professor scholars pushing through. And I was definitely the first one to do anything with Latinos in comics. Now I have PhD students 
who have written dissertations, who've now turned those into books. And those books are getting them tenure. So the climate has changed. But when I was going through, you're right, it was not something that they would have recognized as a legitimate form of scholarship. But today it is. So we are making the changes that you and your podcast and other cultural critics are helping with that. It's really changing the cultural climate to give cultural capital, if you will, cultural value to the study of and the discussion and interpretation of comics. Wow, yeah, that's, it's wild to me to think that, that we've gotten to that point. And I definitely think that's good because obviously there are comics out there that are really, really significant from just intelligent wise. You have the stories that everyone kind of knows, like Flashpoint and the Death in the Family Batman story, but there's a lot of really, really obviously impactful comics and graphic novels looking and how that you can, like you said, get a PhD and how that applies as a kid. You read a comic book and it's something that quote unquote only kids do. What I love is that it's not just me or many of us in the academy, in the university, the ivory tower that is doing this work. We're doing this as a collective. You know, your work as a cultural critic, as someone sort of, you know, very professionally interested in this is also just as significant. It's all part of putting together a kind of big puzzle that shows the world that this is a significant area of study, a significant area that we need to pay attention to, that there's a lot of really important work going on here. Mm -hmm. And this is where it's at. Now, let me just add something here, if you don't mind. Just like literature, just like film, just like, you know, all of the different sort of ways that we come at and interface with stories. And stories are so important. They, story for humans is like the heart that beats in our chest. We don't have story, we don't have life. Now, there are some stories that are made with what I call a very diminished will to style, like people not doing their homework, people just kind of not really that interested. Maybe they're interested in a kind of making some money because it's a comic book that's attached to the release of a movie, you know, mm. uh, etc. So there is that. There's what I call popcorn comics, right? Popcorn films. You eat it, you know, you feel good at the time. Most of us feel a little bit of indigestion later, but we never really think about it again. But then yet, like right. you we're saying like there's some really extraordinary comics out there and that's what we're spending our time on and really like working on right so like going into more i guess specific so would you say you are more of a dc comic fan or more of a marvel person or another one that isn't as well known ah so i have been traditionally more a marvel guy and okay. part of that is marvel for me for latinx comics has been more interested in doing the homework there's been a greater will to style as i call it right and complexity of representation of identities latinx identities african-american identities asian identities etc i can point to some extraordinary moments like the joe quesada's maya lopez echo right in the daredevil comics you know there's so many that i talk about in latinx superheroes and mainstream comics white tiger in the 70s, 1975, in the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. He was a Puerto Rican, Bor Boricua, Latinx superhero that was just like crazy good. George Perez mm -hmm. just killed it, right? But 
More foundationally, Marvel is interested in creating stories about the education of the superhero. So they're not Superman born. They're not superhero born. They become superheroes. And I think for us that have been in cultures traditionally underrepresented, kept out of access to spaces of knowledge and transformative public spaces, political spaces. That education of the hero is a really powerful narrative for us. And Marvel、mm -hmm. has historically been about that. Now, today, DC, I will say, is killing it with their teen graphic novels. So, Gene Yang's Superman Smashes the Clan, Alex Sanchez's You Brought Me the Ocean. The Batman Nightwalker by Marjorie Liu and others. All of these are、mm -hmm. part of this DC teen graphic novel. And those are extraordinary comic storytellings. And part of it is they're bringing in creators from the, say, alternative or the indie, so called indie scenes or the ones that are less sort of mainstream comics into the writing, into the drawing, into the shaping of these stories. And they're killing it, man.、Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you when it comes to Marvel. Mostly when I was growing up, like, I would look to X Men and at the stories that go those characters. And I think I'll say this my favorite superhero is, is Batman. But I wouldn't say Batman to me speaks to any representation point of view or any as being like a minority. Obviously, X Men speaks more to that. And I mean, I didn't know of those characters that you were mentioning. And I think that honestly, historically, that's really great. I didn't even know about Maya Lopez、uh, and White Tiger、yeah. and all that. I'm with you. You. I love Batman. And that is an education of the hero story. That's probably、yeah. you know, why I love that story and maybe why you love it, right? It's not the Superman, right? I am not, frankly, that interested in superheroes that are born with superpowers.、Mm -hmm. You know, the,、yeah. the X Men is really incredible because they are historically marginalized and they have to pass as non mutant and they're,、right. they're sort of educated. Education is a re education, a decolonizing of the mind. And so, in many ways, X Men, even if it's not, say, a kind of Batman styled education origin story, it's really intense, man, because they're basically trying to figure out how to decolonize their minds and allow themselves to be freely who they are. Right. I agree 100% with that. I like, for what they are, the superheroes that have like an accident or whatever, and that gives them the power. I like those stories. For what they are, but when it comes to cultural significance of what they are, there's not much there, as enjoyable as they are. So, when it comes to your favorite superhero on all mediums, who would you say is your favorite? <laughs> well, right now, I'm gonna say the Saladin Ahmed's Miles Morales is really like number one. I would then go to Alex Sanchez's teen graphic novel, The Origin Story of Aqua Lad, and that would right now my second. But there's like so many, like I already mentioned White Tiger, I mentioned also Echo, Maya Lopez. So there's many, but I would say right now, yeah, Miles and Aqua Lad. Okay. I don't know that story. Is that the Calder Aqua? 
Aqualad version or is it a different one? Yes, it's really interesting, you know. It's really kind of building off of the animation Aqualad, the Young Justice Aqualad. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah. I've watched the Young Justice TV show and I really like that character, so that's good to know. I'll look that up. So I guess concentrating more into comic book movies, what would you say your top three are? For me, it, this isn't like a specific order, but Spider-Verse, which we'll get into in a little bit, then after that, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, because to me, that's a really great movie. And then Logan, what are yours? Yeah, well, I think we share a couple of those, but I would say definitely Into the Spider-Verse, but we're gonna talk about that one anyway. So let me throw out some other ones. Thor Ragnarok, Black okay. Panther, Logan. Okay. Thor Ragnarok, because you have a Maori director Right, you have Taika Waititi uh -huh. directing, and there is a really amazing. Speaking of decolonizing, there's a post-colonial subtext. Maybe not even a subtext. Odin and I drowned entire civilizations in blood and tears. Where do you think all this gold came from? We were unstoppable. I was his weapon in the conquest that built Asgard's empire. One by one, the realms became ours. And then, one day, he decided to become a benevolent king. He lost a peace to protect life. Simply because my ambition outgrew his, he banished me, caged me, locked me away like an animal. There is the story itself really pushes hard at bringing audiences into that space of a dominant colonial power oppressing, committing acts of genocide, right? All of those things that we know from colonial colonization and the history of colonizations. And then a push against that and the kind of solidarity movements that are required to sort of push against resist and revolt and i also love the humor of it i love that the director as maori appears you know as the character korg and mm -hmm. you know just the kind of humor in and around that i'm kind of like the leader in here but also the valkyrie character and the very sort of in a wonderful moment when it's made clear that she's lost her same sex partner in that flashback mm -hmm. moment it's a adventure it's an entertaining it's fun it's serious it's tongue-in-cheek but it has this powerful post-colonial decolonial message that we take away from it and then moving to black panther of course you know there's so many things to love about it but one of the biggest things is that it showed the world that you could have a superhero movie with a majority of historically underrepresented that is african-american and african superheroes mm. in front of the camera and people not only would go see it they would love it and it mm. would be a huge blockbuster and you know what, I'm waiting for our Latinx Wakanda. You know, there's so many opportunities for it, we just haven't seen it. And Michael B. Jordan's Killmonger has to hands down one of the most complicated, most empathic characters created in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think, you know, it's just the complexity, you know, the his vision that he's from the street, but he's smart and he sees revolution in a very kind of street way as countered, you know, by Black Panther and his vision, which is more cosmopolitan. I just love everything about it. And then Logan, like you, I mean, you know, Logan takes a lot of the scripts 
that we have consumed and that even have colonized our minds, like the script of going across the border as a place just to party. And the Mexico side of the U.S.-Mexico border as a place of either partying for white kids in the U.S. or as a space for exploitation of bodies. And it takes mm -hmm. those things and it turns them upside down. Like it gives so much screen time to the exploitation of Mexican, Latina women as surrogates, as mm -hmm. the ones that are, you know, the nursemaid to this new generation of mutants, right? And the bilinguality, the fact that we have Laura speaking Spanish. God, I don't know, an hour into the movie. And one of the most extraordinary things, it actually represents African Americans as part of our heartland. They have a farm and they work their farm in the heartland. How many movies show African-Americans outside of urban spaces? I can count maybe, you know, on one hand. And then the final scene is just like heart-wrenching, you know? Right. No, I definitely agree about all that with Logan. And that's one of the reasons why. That's the movie that I selected for the best superhero film. For all the reasons that you said, plus obviously it has great acting and just great cinematography and everything. When it comes to Black Panther, I mean, that, from a filmmaking perspective, I loved it pretty much, obviously, just like everyone else. And one of the greatest things about it is that the first time I remember seeing the movie was the complexity of both T'Challa and also Killmonger. They grew up basically on opposite sides of the coin. They were very representative of the Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X type of idea. Obviously, to in a superhero expansion. But to me, that spoke to me right there. And that was obviously similar, in a sense, to going back to the X-Men. Obviously, Magneto versus Professor X. But with, obviously, the ethnicities being the correct ones of that an analogy was, I think, that's one of the more powerful things about that movie. And there was also another panel on Comic-Con that looked into the psychology of Black Panther, which, to me, I didn't even think of that and I didn't even know about the whole idea of the Atkinson minority identity development model and Dr. Hines on the panel she kind of went into that and even though it's based on a white ethnocentric society listeners who don't know what this is this model has five stages so this is pretty much word for word Atkins minority identity development model so the first stage is essentially a pre-encounter stage that basically has people absorbing many beliefs and values of a dominant white culture including the notion that quote-unquote white is right and quote-unquote black is wrong and it's de-emphasis on one's racial group membership largely unaware of race or racial implications the second stage is the actual encounter which is a, a forced by an event or series of events to acknowledge the impact of racism in one's life and the reality that one cannot truly be white and you're forced to focus on the identity as a member of a group targeted by racism. The third stage is the immersion and emergent stage that essentially is a simultaneous desire to surround oneself with visible symbols of one's racial identity and an active avoidance of symbols of whiteness. And in this model, it states that people actively seek out opportunities to explore aspects of one's own history and culture with support of peers from one's own racial background. Then the fourth one, internalization, is when the person in the stage becomes secure of their own sense of racial identity. Pro-black attitudes will become more expansive, open and less defensive. You're willing to establish meaningful relationships with whites who acknowledge and are respective of one's self-definition. And then at the final stage, it's the eternalization and commitment. So the person in this would find ways to translate one's personal sense of black 
blackness into a plan of action or to concerns of blacks as a group which is sustained over time and comfort with one's own race and those around them. And Dr. Hines essentially says that both T'Challa and Killmonger go through this but they obviously have different outcomes. They have similar stories growing up with their respected fathers who inspire them with the glory of Wakanda. One gets to live in it and the other one lives with the dream of it. Baba? Yes, my son. Tell me a story. Which one? The story of home. Millions of years ago, a meteorite made of vibranium, the strongest substance in the universe, struck the continent of Africa, affecting the plant life around it. And when the time of men came, five tribes settled on it and called it Wakanda. One is the king of a country and the other is a spy who has radical ideas. This is obviously stage one. Then they both have traumatic events that affect their lives, which lead them obviously into stage two. Killmonger and rightfully blames the Wakandans for this. He lives in Oakland, California, which has one of the highest rates of crime in all of the United States of 68 people per 1,000 population and is safer than only 1% of other U.S. cities, as cited by the NeighborhoodScout.com of Oakland and crime in that city. So his choice is essentially defined for him with this traumatic event, his father's ideas, and really the world that he lives in. So he is now in stage three. And it's no surprise that he essentially sets up his goal to use Wakandan technology to try to empower non-Wakandan black people to stand up. This choice starts happening at a young age all the way up to the main events of the film. And essentially he internalizes all of his pain, which leads him into not being able to progress into stage four and five. T'Challa obviously has a very different experience. Though fictional, Wakanda can be thought as a crime-ridden city with no issues aside from different points of views of the different Wakandan tribes. His life is pretty much well off, obviously, in comparison to Killmonger's, and he lives in a very technologically advanced, and love is pretty much shared all around, but is obviously very hidden to the outside world. His father is killed in civil war, and he becomes king. In my culture, dead is not the end. It's more of a stepping-off point. You reach out with both hands and bust and segment. They lead you into the green veld where you can run forever. That sounds very peaceful. My father thought so. I am not my father. We as the audience become immersed in Wakandan culture and we learn about his history as a child but are shown little to nothing of Killmongers. So we essentially are pushed into this viewpoint as T'Challa as the hero and Killmonger as the villain. But then we are shown that T'Challa's father killed his brother, Killmonger's father, which pushes him into stage three. And so when he internalizes his pain with this knowledge, he doesn't know what to do because his father kept the world isolated from Wakanda and that somewhat worked. And he even tries to expel Killmonger from Wakanda. So he's now kind of moving into stage four. But the difference is how they really approach these latter two phases because T'Challa sees an opportunity to grow with the outside world, whereas Killmonger Killmonger chooses to stand up against the colonizers, Wakandan weaponry, and he wants to beat him at the old game. However, as T'Challa states, You have become that. The world took everything away from me. Everything I ever loved. T'Challa sees the pain in the sentiment, but in knowing his past, he understands him. And again, us as the viewers know 
that if we had the same circumstances, we probably would have ended up the same way. However, as the hero of a comic book movie, he can't let him do this. And then even in the end, he offers, Maybe we can steal Helio. Even though with everything that he's gone, he even tries to change him. I mean, he's the hero, but that's the complexity of it. And then after that, he opens Wakanda to the world and fully steps into more progressive yet still white ethnocentric stage five. And this panel, in addition to the one that Frederick was on, were two of my favorite panels because I really think that shows why Black Panther was such a well-made film. It uses psychology to give a story about two men who grew up differently but had two opposite yet understandable points of view. The fact that psychology is another aspect of this film definitely makes it at the top of my list. I wouldn't say it's top three, but it is definitely up there when it comes to comic book movies. And that psychology aspect brought this whole new perspective on these characters that just spoke so much about that film. And for me, when it comes to top Marvel films, it's between that and Winter Soldier. And that's just because of, I think Winter Soldier is really good, but from a cultural end, it's one of the few MCU films that I feel doesn't rely on what's going on outside of it. When I saw Civil War, when Black Panther first came on. For me, I loved the character then. I thought obviously Chadwick Boseman was great as the character. But when you go watch Black Panther, the death of the father obviously is in that story. But you don't have to watch Civil War to understand what happened there. Mm -hmm. They just show it. And that's why I really like that film. I will say with Thor Ragnarok, I am not a fan of that movie. But I didn't think of those examples that you gave when it came to obviously representation and especially the colonizer aspect. I didn't even think of that. And with Taika Waititi, I, I like his comedy to an, a certain aspect, but I feel that with the MCU, there's that MCU humor that I'm not the biggest fan of a lot of the time. And I thought there was more of that in Thor Ragnarok, but then obviously watching Jojo Rabbit this past year, that's obviously his type of humor, but especially with the new qualities that you just brought up that I didn't even think of, that may open my mind to some other, I guess, appreciation for that film because there's some choices in there like from comic book character standpoint I don't like what they do with Hulk in that movie but I do want to definitely give it another shot going into like we already mentioned with the Spider-Verse and being the Spider-Man character and with this character being the whole point of this episode is because Miles Morales had his opening story arc in September 2011 in Ultimate Comics Spider-Man so the plan for a black Spider-Man goes back to August September 2008 which was a few months before the election of Barack Obama as the president of the United States while the election of him did help this get done, it wasn't the driving force. Miles Morales was created by writer Brian Mile Bendis and artist Sarah Pacelli. Bendis' design was heavily influenced by African-American actor Donald Glover's appearance in Spider-Man Pajamas in Anthropology 101, the second season premiere of the television comedy series Community. And obviously, as a lot of people know, he went on to voice Miles Morales in a TV show. My name is Miles Morales, and I'm Spider-Man and also played the character's Uncle Aaron. The other night you told that dude, if you're gonna shoot somebody, shoot me. It's pretty ballsy. I don't want those weapons in this neighborhood. I got a nephew who live here. So when this character was designed, Pacelli made Miles in a way to define his personality, looking at his clothing, to his body language and expressions. And so they came up with Miles Morales, who was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York City. He was the son of an African-American father and a Puerto Rican mother. He has been described as an intelligent nerd with an aptitude for science similar to his predecessor, Peter Parker. So they brought him on because in this story, essentially, like the movie, Peter Parker is killed and they need a new Spider-Man. So 
there are some similarities between Peter and Miles, but they gave Miles some different conflicts and different anxieties. For example, right after acquiring his superhuman abilities from a spider bite, he has a debate between himself about what are the traits that lead to criminal behavior. And this is because he admires his uncle Aaron and he learns that both him and his father did crime. But when they eventually got put in prison and Miles' father actually reformed, became a cop, and Aaron eventually became a career criminal known as Prowler. So this made him wonder essentially is being a criminal hardwired into his DNA made him debate on if he's a good person or not, whether or not he deserves these powers. And it's a really interesting dynamic that this character has that Peter Parker never really had. And especially once you start adding in the cultural aspects to that is with how a lot of mediums definitely portray people of color in negative aspects. So looking at that it's a very significant reason to bring up this character and that's i'm making this episode kind of about the creation of this character prior to this there's obviously been superheroes and other ones that were their own character and but this was one of the first times that they ended up bringing in a black superhero to take over for a character that really has been known to be everyone's spider-man up to this point and this was brought on with some mixed reactions because peter parker has been one one of the fan favorites of comics for a really long time and obviously things have changed with the opinion of this character because they've 2018 spider-man into the spider-verse so this is a computer animated superhero film that features miles morales incarnation of the marvel comics character spider-man it was the first animated feature in the spider-man franchise and it was directed by bob Perchetti, peter ramsey and rodney rothman it was written by phil lord and rothman and stars the voices of shameek moore as miles morales slash spider-man it also has the voices of Jake Johnson, Haley Seinfeld, Mahershala Ali, Brian Tyler Henley, Lily Tomlin, Luna Lauren, Velez, John Mulaney, Kimiko Glenn, Nicholas Cage, and Liv Schreiber. As if you don't know about it, it is set in the shared multiverse called the Spider-Verse and follows Miles as he becomes the new Spider-Man in this one after the Peter Parker voiced by Chris Pine is killed by Kingpin and he has to save New York City from Kingpin as well. So I did do a review on this film by myself in season one on episode 23. So feel free to go back and listen to my full thoughts on the film. We're gonna go into this film, but not as much as I did in that episode. So if you wanna get my full thoughts on it, definitely go check that out. But before we get too much into the Miles Morales, prior to the Spider-Verse, there was obviously three other renditions of the Spider-Man character before it, all of them obviously being Peter Parker. Which Spider-Man actor slash film series would you say is your favorite so you know there's other spideys right there's miguel o'hara who's irish mexican oh i did not know that you know we have different iterations and miguel o'hara is really interesting you know it's earth 928 you know it's a sort of parallel universe but and it's set in the future but it's he's a really interesting character and he's very much rooted in his mexicanidad his latinidad his um and his kind of irish ancestry there's some different iterations i would say though that in the end i think i'm really not a fan of any of them okay that's fair <laughs> Definitely Garfield at the bottom. Toby maybe at the top just because, you know, he was in a, the Sam Raimi, you know, directed Spideys and those were really like if super innovative. Like he took, you know, Spider-Man into places, you know, in terms of cinematography and, and everything that we just hadn't seen before. 
But yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm a big fan of, and I'm definitely not a fan of Tom Holland,、um, especially, you know, given that I just don't understand Homecoming. Like, why do we get Filipino American? Playing Ned as the sidekick, which I love, but you know, in the comic, of course, it's we've got you know Korean American Ganky Lee. But if we can do that with the sidekick, why aren't we casting Donald Glover as our Spidey? You know, like if we can bring the markers of ethnicity in and through the sidekick persona, why not just go for it? And just do our miles. So in a way, Tom Holland for me never was was never gonna make it because I was always, why aren't we getting our Donald Glover as you know, or another you know African American actor, Afro Latinx actor, right?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think similarly, I'm not a fan of the Holland version either, mostly because I think they mess up the origin. I don't like what they do with how Uncle Ben really isn't even. In that story at all, and it's like with the Miles character. Okay, we, we would have him, but we take out Uncle Aaron completely.、Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. Right? Why? I get because they've done that origin story so many times that people know it. But that also is a key point of who Spider-Man is.、Mm-hmm. And to completely eliminate that, I think takes down the film a lot. I'm actually different with you. I like Garfield a little bit more,、mm-hmm. just because to me he actually feels like a teenager, especially now rewatching the Maguire versions. I never thought he was in high school.、Mm. You know, Peter Parker's fine, and it worked fine. I had, you know, I had my kind of Peter Parker moments when I was growing up, and you know, there's a lot to be said about a masked, completely costumed superhero, especially for those of us who've been. Historically underrepresented, you know, we can say you know more easily identify because we're not seeing the color of the skin. But the fact of the matter is, Miles Morales as a superhero is skin color, is identity, and costume all in one. And if you think about Into the Spider Verse, you know it's the moment when he spray paints his costume black, when he uses the instruments of graffiti art, traditionally、mm-hmm. maligned and marginalized aesthetic graffiti, to own his costume, but and not to step into a pre-made a costume that was he's refashioning it. It's the moment when he does that, and the moment when he jumps and takes the leap on his own, that you, for the first time, see the integration of Miles, Afro Latinx Miles, and his struggles as a teenager, the awkwardness with Gwen, etc., but、mm. also his own identity within the urban space as a Latinx and、mm-hmm. his superhero. So. Costume and body and identity become uniform as he jumps in a costume that he has made for himself, and then of course the Jordans and the hoodie kind of top it all、mm-hmm. off. There's no better、yeah. Spidey in my book. Then Miles into the Spider Verse, and of course Brian Bendis kind of set us up for that. No, I definitely agree. I think that this is definitely, arguably, one of the better versions of Spider-Man, especially in film. With obviously this film winning the Best Animated Academy Award for this, it's one of the coolest things about it. Obviously, everything that you mentioned, it's such a well-done movie on all aspects. When it comes to sidekick, that's obviously one of the things that when it comes to just disenfranchised people, especially Asians,、mm-hmm. they're usually 
put into that sidekick role. And I think that's something that obviously I wouldn't want to continue always. I mean, not to against that character because it's obviously that's based on an Asian character like you mentioned, but I think that that's something that we've kind of slowly been moving toward where there's more Asians in very defining roles. Like with the Daredevil series, you have Asians being a very strong part of that. I mean, they're villains, but still they're kind of in the front end of, they're not just the sidekick and how, especially in the Daredevil series, how the two big Asian hand members, they're pretty much speaking their native tongue pretty much the entire time until they choose to speak English. Mm-hmm. That was such a cool thing for me. Eventually, hopefully we'll actually put a huge superhero on screen, which I think they're doing. I think you're right in the sense of putting Donald Glover. That was one thing that I think when they originally were coming out with the Spider-Man, they wanted to do that, I think, which is why they kind of included him as mm. the Uncle Aaron character. Mm-hmm. I did enjoy that mm-hmm. they did that. I think Donald Glover is a good actor. I just like him as a person. I think he's a great musician and everything. And he's actually really funny too. So I'm glad they included him. But in the same time, in a live action, hopefully with how they're bringing multiverse maybe they'll bring in the live action version of miles Mm -hmm. eventually and then we'll get to see that yeah maybe Um, maybe with disney plus doing all of these um you know these other creations within the mcu mm -hmm. shamik moore was a great voice actor for miles and into the Mm spider-verse and he's a little too probably a little too old to play him in a live action but he was perfect you know as the voice of miles yeah, I really loved him as the voice. I think he's 25. If he were to do it, they would have to not do the high school mm-hmm. um, story, which they could do. Mm-hmm. I don't want them just recreate the Spider-Verse, but live action version. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think that they would have to change it up a little bit. So if they were to change it up, I think they could do it that way and he could be it, but we'll see. Now, we've kind of already spoken a lot about what we liked about the movie. That one scene that you were describing, at, that is such a powerful scene for all the reasons that you mentioned and then obviously over the course of the movie it leads to how significant that moment is especially when it shows the glass coming off that means his fingers were still stuck and it's such a great hero defining moment of him taking that leap of faith and essentially becoming spider-man in that moment and like you said it's his own spider-man moment it's not just defined by the death of his uncle all the other spider characters in that movie they have the death of whomever that makes them be who they are miles has that too with Uncle Aaron, but that's not what pushes him into being Spider-Man. It's it's his relationship with his father. And it's kind of more of a positive moment, obviously drawn from a negative moment, but that relationship with his father. Look, I know I don't always do what you need me to do or say what you need me to say, but I'm, I see this, this spark in you. It's, it's amazing. It's why I push you, but it's yours. Whatever you choose to do with it, you'll be great. I love you. You don't have to say it back, though. And that love that he feels from his father pushes him to essentially want to take that leap. And even though he's still scared, he still does it. I see this, this spark in you. It's, it's amazing. Whatever you choose to do with it, you'll be great. And that what makes him Spider-Man and now strong enough to now go up against Kingpin. Everything that you mentioned from the spray paint to the J's on his feet, everything about that and it's just such a great powerful moment. That's all it is, Miles. A leap of faith. Like, what's up, danger?
from a film aspect, there is some stuff that bothers me about the movie. I know like the style of it is obviously supposed to be looked at like a comic book, which I appreciate at times, but some of it from a preferential point, sometimes I look at it and I get kind of dizzy with. It doesn't work all the time with me. And then the villain, it's not complicated as Killmonger. To me, there's not much more into it aside from he's trying to get his family back and Spider-Man essentially is trying to prevent that, which don't get me wrong, is a standard villain and it's fine. But was there anything that you can think of that you didn't like about the movie specifically? Or do you think it's a which is fine if you do, if you think it's a perfect film. I think it's a pretty perfect film. I mean, I know that some people have said, you know, they complained or were critical because, well, in the end, you know, we've got our Latino Spidey, but it's, a, you know, our alternate universe or our alternate Spidey, you know, the, all the things that you and I just talked about. But, you know, to be honest, and this picking up on something you said, you know, the fact of the matter is that it does an extraordinary job on all levels, both on the level of voice casting, you know, the Spanish code switching, the Latina mom, the dad, the loving family for like the first time or one of the few times I can count on one hand that you have an urban set young teen, ethno-racial teen who's got a loving family. And, you know, mm -hmm. how many times is it that we're shown to have a broken family or an abusive father? Finally, we've got like some really, really complex, deep representation. And it's the love of, especially of the father with the son and the mother of two, right? But yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I love that. And, you know, to be honest, the way they chose to kind of do a transtextual, if you will, or mixed media format to it, I think is pretty exciting and energizing. Let me just say something here, which is if you go to comicosity.com, I wrote an article on the uh, ethno-racial pause and Miles Morales. And I talk about the ethno-racial pause as something significant in especially the Saladin Ahmed's Miles, because the ethno-racial pause is the moment in the comic where it breathes and it asks us as readers to really step into those moments of interaction between Miles and the dad, Miles and the mom, Miles and the uncle. In fact, action superhero comics like Miles are extraordinary because less so because they have incredible action that's important but they're extraordinary because they let us breathe into these moments where we can pause where we can see how miles is an integrated character with the urban landscape where he exists in a complex and sort of very layered relationship with the family members all of those things that we have been historically disallowed as characters of color in novels, in movies, in animations, in TV shows. Well, it's all happening. And the glitch for me in Into the Spider-Verse is that moment where it kind of pulls us out of the forward motion of the storytelling of the Into the Spider-Verse animation. And it asks us to kind of take a pause in this kind of hyperbolic and this exaggerated moment that intensifies our co-creation, like we talked about earlier, with this Afro-Latinx character. 
Mm -hmm. I really like your point about the, the family aspect, how it shows a normal family. Like you said, there's not a lot of representation of something like that. I mean, with the Cosby show, that's one of the reasons why back then it was so impactful. It showed doctor and a lawyer being high end in their professions. And obviously that changed a little bit when it comes to obviously the Bill Cosby situation, which I'm not going to go into on this, but just the impact of that show is very similar. It's not a broken family, like you mentioned. Family is just a working class family just trying to get by and trying to let their son have the best opportunity for them. They put him into a better school and they're working hard and trying to push him to just be the best that he can be, which is really what any parent would do. And it really shows them just doing normal things. Not to say what anyone else does isn't normal, but that's the perception of what is a normal family. And seeing that, even though it's not a big point of the movie, but the representation of that, I definitely agree with you, is something that doesn't really exist a lot of the times, when, it, especially when it comes to families of color. So we've been talking for a little about an hour now. Just to conclude, where do you think representation in general of people of color in film and comic books, where it's going to go? What are your thoughts about where the future is going to go? The future is now. You know, we're not sitting around on our hands, you know, waiting for someone else to come along to say, you can do this. We have so many creators, Latinx creators, African-American creators that are just popping all over the place. You know, I, that panel I did with John Jennings mm -hmm. and David Walker and, you know, others, the diversity in comics panel for Comic-Con, that was all about showing the world that, yes, there's a problem when we even have diversity in the title of a panel because it means clearly that you know we're still having to deal with this stuff but at the same time it shows that the world is a little bit blind to the fact that we have incredible creators already doing all this work mm -hmm. and the latino comics expo my expo Solcon, the black brown and indigenous comics expo the bcaf the brown and black comics Arts Festival in San Francisco, uh, Mex Americon in, in Austin, East LA Cap, Indigicon. We're not waiting. The future is now. We are paving the way for the future. DC and Marvel are kind of figuring this out, and that's why you see DC grabbing all this talent or mm -hmm. trying to grab all this talent for its comics, its teen graphic novel stuff. The future is now. It's being shaped now. It has been shaped now. So, you know, for me, it's we're not waiting around. DC and Marvel have been kind of left in the dust as far as print comics mm -hmm. and they're trying to play catch up to what's been going on with our creators of color across mm -hmm. the country so just to finish up i was a big fan of james lip show inside the actor's studio for those who don't know at the end of every episode he would ask a list of 10 questions that was originated by the french television personality bernard pivot on his show apostrophes after the proust questionnaire and so to honor his memory i'm going to continue that now my questions aren't the exact same twist them a little bit so you get to know a little bit of my guests at the end of each episode and some of them are a little bit fun so let's get started coronavirus aside how often do you watch movies at the theater oh uh at least three or four times a month coronavirus aside as well how often do you watch movies at home almost every night who actor or director will make you watch a film no matter what ryan coogler do you prefer digital or hard copy movies 
hard copy. What movie-related profession would you like to attempt if you could? Directing. What is your favorite movie or movie genre? Action. What would you say your least favorite movie or movie genre? Musicals. Best Batman actor. Christian Bale. Is it biopic or biopic? <laughs> um, biopic. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear said to you when you arrive at the pearly gates? Your job isn't done. Go back. All right. Yeah. So that concludes our episode. Thanks for coming on. I do appreciate it. And if anyone wants to reach out to you to discuss what we talked about or anything, how can they do that? My handle, Professor Latinx, is for everything. My Twitter, Insta, and then you know you can get through to me also, Professor Latinx at gmail dot com. Thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate you joining me to talk about comics. No problem. And- me too. It was a pleasure. And take care. Yeah, you too. Thank you again. Bye bye. So, what did you all think of Spider Man Into the Spider Verse? Let me know. Hit me up on social media. The Formal Review is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The URL is all the same. It's at The Formal Review. Feel free to also check out BackseatDirectors.com where I write with the big team movie reviews and also other editorial articles. Again, that's BackseatDirectors.com. Please also subscribe to the podcast on your favorite service. It is on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and really, honestly, anywhere you can find podcasts. Also, I'm always wanting to grow and improve, so feel free to leave a review on your favorite service. I see the numbers and I do this for you all and I want to keep it entertaining. I really appreciate everyone supporting me by listening and talking about movies with me online. For those who have contributed financially, I really thank you for supporting me in that way. For those who want to financially contribute, please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast. And I thank you very much in advance and any donation is appreciated. Thank you all for tuning in once again and until next time, well, I won't say it's in movies, but be safe, wash your hands, and take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Formal Review. We hope you'll join us again.